The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 58, Mercian East Anglia. Following the execution of Athelbert II, Offa did in East Anglia what he had already done to the Witcher and to Kent. He assumed direct control. Since his personal rule lasted for only a couple of years, beginning in 794 and ending with his death in 796, the details of Offa's rule in East Anglia are somewhat uncertain. No charters survive from this brief period, or indeed from much of East Anglian history, and we discussed in the previous episode how Offa shared moneyers with the rulers of East Anglia via Mercia's de facto dominance there. Thus, the fact that East Anglian moneyers minted coins for Offa is not in itself evidence for his control of the kingdom. Why then do we believe that Offa ruled East Anglia directly? As with much from this period, the supposition can only be held loosely. However, there is good reason for the position. We know that Offa had already taken the step of annexing the kingdom of Witcher. Likewise, he openly asserted in charters related to landing Kent that the rebellious king Edgbert had been a disloyal minister, thus subordinating all Kentish monarchs to the level of Offa's vassals. Given the traditions of Offa's direct role in the murder of Athelbert, historians have felt justified in asserting that he seized direct power in East Anglia after 794. Add to this, that there was seemingly no East Anglian king between 794 and 796, and it begins to seem likely that the kingdom had been incorporated into Offa's fledgling Mercian Empire. Following the double blow of Offa's death in 796, and then that of his son and heir Edgefrith soon after, the imperial Greater Mercia that he created was seemingly thrown into disarray. Many of the smaller kingdoms that bordered Mercia broke free and reasserted their independence. East Anglia was no exception to this. From the years immediately following Offa's death, there survived 12 coins minted in the name of a King Eadwald. These coins are of a distinctly East Anglian type, in that they revert to the practice of using runic letters rather than the Latin alphabet, a trait which suggests an attempt to draw a link between Eadwald and the earlier East Anglian kings. However, we know nothing else about Eadwald other than what we can glean from his coins. He isn't mentioned in any of the written accounts of the period, 
and this is a time when the near total destruction of East Anglian charters by later Viking invaders has really hamstrung our ability to develop a historical perspective. Possibly Eadwald issued charters as well as coins. He certainly seems to have ruled for more than just a couple of years if the numismatic evidence is any indication. Yet the general dearth of primary written material following the ravages of the great heathen army mean that we can say only a very little, if anything at all, about him. It appears that the brief spasm of East Anglian independence that Eadwald spearheaded was crushed by Coenwulf of Mercia at some point prior to 805. It's around that time that Eadwald's coinage ceased to be produced, and coins of Coenwulf become dominant in East Anglia. Again, since there is nothing really surviving besides the coins, we don't know for a fact that this means that there was no king in East Anglia, possibly there were sub-kings, but it seems certainly that Coenwulf was the sole producer of the coins used in East Anglia at this time, which may indicate that he was indeed the sole ruler of East Anglia following the disappearance of Eadwald. From here on out, we are reliant entirely on the incredibly enigmatic evidence of coinage. Coenwulf, Chaelwulf, and Beornwulf all minted coins in East Anglia, which now must be taken as a sign that the kingdom was under Mercian rule, at least until other evidence appears to undermine this thesis. If there were sub-kings in East Anglia at this time is unknown. If there were any, they weren't allowed to mint coins, and any charters they produced have been lost. So even if they did exist, they've left no historical footprint, and therefore it's as if they never existed at all. A somewhat sobering thought. A sense of the East Anglians' resentment to all this is gleaned through their response to the defeat of Beornwulf by Edgbert of Wessex at Ellendon in 825. Following that battle, all of England south of the Thames was lost to Mercia, and came under de facto West Saxon domination, but the East Anglians remained within the Mercian sphere of influence. However, seeing the defeat of the Mercians, the East Anglians proceeded to request aid from Edgbert against the Mercian overlords. Getting wind of this, Beonwulf invaded East Anglia in an attempt to reassert control there. However, during the course of this invasion, he was killed, as was his successor Ludeca, who also attempted to reassert Mercian control in East Anglia with fatal results. This movement for freedom may well have been led by a noble by the name of Athelstan. We can hypothesise that he led this revolt, or was at least a prominent figure within it, because following the deaths of Beonwulf and Ludeca, he became King of East Anglia around 827. At this point, East Anglia was now free of Mercian overlordship, and would remain such for the rest of its history. This then seems to be a hopeful time, with Mercia receding and the new ally in Wessex appearing less interested in direct overlordship. East Anglia's prospect under Athelstan in the late 820s finally were looking up again. But on the eastern horizon, over the waves of the North Sea, a new threat was approaching which would ultimately destroy East Anglia and much of England with it. The Danes were coming with a hunger for blood and gold. No one alive at the time knew it, but by 827, 
the Viking Age was well and truly underway, and a war-ravaged coastal kingdom like East Anglia made prize pickings for the seaborne warriors. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Once again, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join me again next time. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.